feel sad when you were listening to Isaac play that? We're going to uh, be starting this sermon series, Selah, Living Life in the Minor Key, all through Lent. I, uh, I, I typically don't kind of create my own sermon series, just so you know. And, um, I, until I moved to this church two and a half years ago, almost three years ago now, I almost always would preach straight from the lectionary. And you may be wondering what that is. So the lectionary is a set of texts, biblical texts, that go together typically. And a group of scholars and uh, theologians and preachers get together every 10 years or so, and they create what is called the Revised Common Lectionary. And it's a set of passages that preachers can go to to preach from. And so during the seasons of Lent, and Advent and Pentecost and always at Easter and the High Holy Days, I try to go back to the lectionary to preach for a couple of reasons. One is, I think it's important for us to mark time in a sacred way. And so this season of Lent is a fun one because I don't know how marketers are going to sell more to people who are fasting from something. And so it's kind of fun for me to think about like, oh, we got you this time finally, you know. Um, but also, we, we are, we're connecting to a movement that's global and that is really, really old. Lent started around 600 uh, of the Common Era. And it was started for new converts to Christianity. So for 40 days leading up to the time of their baptism, which would be at Easter, there were all of these study, all these themes going on where people were learning how to be disciples of Jesus. And so I think it's fun and good for us to tie into our history but I also like to go back to the lectionary because it ties us into this global theme that we call Christianity. So, for example, my sister-in-law goes to a, uh, a Bible church down in, like, way down in South Texas, basically all the way down into hell, and um, <laughs> you ought to go there. It is, like, stifling the heat and the humidity. And so um, I remember one time, I don't I had posted something about a sermon that I was preaching, and she texted, hey, my preacher preached from the very same sermon, or very same text this morning, and I wanted to be like, yeah, that's because he used the lectionary, but she would have, like, tuned me out like you are right now. So, <laughs> if you want to know the text that I'm going to be preaching on, all the way up to Good Friday, I mean, uh, to Palm Sunday, you can just Google Revised Common Lectionary. And it'll take you to Vanderbilt University's website, and that's where all of the texts are listed. And we're going to be in the Psalms. We're going to focus on the Psalms. There's this word in the Psalms that people typically will skip over when they read the Psalms. And I'm going to make the argument, don't skip over. The word is selah, and it means rest. And it's a musical term, so just like I don't read music, but my understanding is that there's some sort of symbol if you read music that tells you this is a place to kind of pause for a beat or two. Selah means to pause and rest. This is Psalm 32. The one whose wrongdoing is forgiven, whose sin is covered over, is truly happy. The one the Lord doesn't consider guilty and whose spirit there is no dishonesty, that one is truly happy. When I kept quiet, my bones were out. I was groaning all day long, every day, every night, because your hand was heavy upon me. My energy was sapped as if 
and a summer job. They lie. So I admitted my sin to you. I didn't conceal my guilt. I'll confess my sins to the Lord, is what I said. Then you remove the guilt of my sin. That's why all the faithful should pray to you during troubled times, so that a great flood of water won't reach them. You are my secret hideout. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of rescue. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you about the direction you should go. I'll advise you and keep my eye on you. Don't be like some senseless horse or mule whose movement must be controlled with a bit and a bridle. Don't be anything like that. The pain of the wicked is severe, but faithful love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord. You are righteous. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, all you whose hearts are right, sing out to the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. This is a strange psalm in some ways. Um, you may be saying, oh, it seems pretty straightforward to me. But for me, who goes back and tries to like conjure up what I was learning when I was seminary, sometimes when I read the scriptures, it's a little bit strange. So you may or may not know this, but the psalms are categorized. And so you can read through a psalm and you can hear a lament in it. Basically like somebody filling out a complaint card and turning it into God. Or you can hear a psalm of praise, where uh, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, like David is praising God. And then there are psalms of confession, Psalm 51, which David wrote after one of his more despicable things that he did, and there were several in David's life. He wrote this psalm of confession. Then there are psalms of joy, and there are, there are all different kinds of psalms, and they're categorized, and so... You can read them and figure it out. But Psalm 32 is one that people argue over, and they argue about what type of psalm it is. Is it a psalm of confession? Well, I don't know. He, verse 5 says, so I admitted to you my sin. But there's no specific confession like there is in Psalm 51, which is kind of the epitome of all confession psalms. Is it a psalm of wisdom? Well, possibly like... I think that there's something to this idea that in confessing, we are finding wisdom because we recognize that maybe wisdom comes before confession, and, and so it's not clearly a psalm of wisdom. And one of the things that throws me off personally in this psalm is this idea of happiness. You've probably heard me say before, and maybe disagree with me as I now disagree with myself. That happiness is not what we ought to be seeking. We should be seeking joy. Joy is richer and deeper and kind of comes from this place of confidence. And, and so I, would, I, I like to argue with myself and argue out loud with anybody who will listen that joy is what we should be after. Because happiness is kind of fleeting. It feels flighty. It feels a little bit flaky to me. Like, oh, this is, makes me happy when the Chiefs win the Super Bowl, but the very next day I'm nervous about are they going to win it next year. Like, happiness comes and goes. You know what I mean? 
But this week, as I was thinking about this particular psalm and this particular word, I started arguing with myself again. Why is it that you think happiness is not a good thing when this psalmist, this person who wrote this, obviously thinks it's a really good thing? And what is it, Ross, that you really want for your children and for your friends? Well, I definitely want them to be filled with joy. I want you all that are here to be filled with joy. But I also want you to be happy. Like, how cruel of a parent would I be if I was like, yeah, I don't really care if my kids are happy. I just want them to have joy. That doesn't feel very happy, you know? Like, and then, and then we say as Americans that we have the freedom to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Like, happiness isn't a bad thing. And so, uh, I, I apologize. I think I was wrong. Like, maybe we should pursue happiness. Maybe we should find the things that make us happy. In fact, that's one of the things we say in our culture a lot. Like, like yeah, I'm, I mean, I don't really, but whatever makes them happy. Which maybe that's not a great way to approach topics with people because sometimes the things that make people happy are things that are going to bring destruction upon them also. Like self-destruction, not die like from life bullets. So why does it matter? Like, why does it matter if this is a psalm of confession or a psalm of lament or, or why? Well, I, I think it matters because... Because when we read through the scriptures and we read the Bible, we ought to be thinking about what it's really trying to say to us, right? So we hear this story of Adam and Eve that was read to us. And we can start having arguments right away, like, is this a real story? Is this real? Like, or really, did the earth start with two people? Because science says this, and the Bible says, like, which one is right? Well, maybe the answer is yes. Maybe the answer is they're both right. Maybe we're looking at the Bible to find answers to questions that it's never even tried to answer. Right? Like, maybe it's not about the accuracy of the story of Adam and Eve, but the truth of the story of Adam and Eve. The bigger picture that there are these people, like, we can relate to this, I think. There are these people who basically had everything in front of them, but they wanted more. They, they wanted more. They wanted the one more thing. If I had this one more thing, I finally would be happy. I, I would know what it is to think the way God thinks, to understand what good and evil is, because right now, all I know is good. And, and you know, they didn't know that part of it, but they just knew they wanted this thing. And so they took it, because they could. But one more thing brought them grief, brought them pain, brought them shame. So they hid themselves. They took fig leaves and they sewed them together and they made garments not knowing, I guess, that those things are going to dry up and fall off and you're going to be stuck in your shame to begin, to begin with. But either way, like, they were hiding from their own shame. And if, if they were two real people and we had a time machine, I would say, let's jump in and go talk to them about confession because listen to what the psalmist says. I confess my sins to the Lord. I'm going to confess my sins to the Lord. This is what I said. Then you remove the guilt of my sin. Selah. I think this is a psalm about hope. 
I think this is a psalm that gives us reason to have hope. That if we recognize our flaws, if we recognize the ways that we've made mistakes, and we confess those things to God, there is hope because we know that God is a God of grace. <coughs> and that if we receive that grace, we can rest. When I was a younger guy, I would hear songs about grace and I would hear sermons about God's grace and how we need to receive God's grace. And the problem for me was, and I don't know if you have this problem, but the problem that I had was it kind of became about me receiving God's grace. And if I don't do that, if I don't accept it and receive it, then something is wrong with me and I'm going to be punished because I haven't received God's grace. Well, I think the problem with that way of thinking is that that turns me into God. It turns me into the judge of who I am and what I'm about when it's really God who is the judge and God's judgment is grace and love and forgiveness. How do I know that? Well, because you can read the life of Jesus and you can see how he approached people who had done great harm to others and were chained up outside of their towns and were able to heal them and forgive them and to make them whole. He would approach lepers and touch them and forgive them. He would go to the people who were tying these people up or casting them out and say to them, hey, what you're doing is wrong. And I think if they would have just said, like, yeah, what I'm doing is wrong, you're right. They would have found a wholeness of life. But instead, like Adam and Eve, and like we do all too often, I think, we try to hide. We try to pretend, we put our best foot forward and act like that's what people see is our best foot and they won't see this stuff, then we don't have to own it. But if we step into the light, we find wholeness and forgiveness. Am I making sense? Are you just saying that? A few weeks ago, had a church uh, summit, town hall meeting, fireside chat, like I don't know what you call it. There were a whole bunch of people here, and we were talking about this partnership that we're working and developing with the church, the Methodist Church and Truth or Consequences, and I was asked this really quick, or I wasn't. We, who were up on the stage, were asked a really great question. What is our mission? What is the mission of this church? And I realized when I heard that question that I had done a poor job of casting the vision that this church has. And, and, and so, right around that same time, I had given homework to all of you to write your own kind of personal mission statement. And I had done some work, and I did some more work to figure out what my personal mission statement is. And then my family and I sat down, and we worked it out, and we kind of parsed out some words, and we came up with a family mission statement. And then I started thinking about our church and what is our mission? What is our purpose? What should we be about? And I'm not sure that it's my job to say, this is what our purpose is, right? Like, I don't want to be that kind of leader. I want to get in the mix and figure it out together. But I started thinking, like, what is our purpose as individual followers of Jesus? Like, what should all of us be about as individuals? And in my estimation, it's this. That our job is to point people to the grace of God 
that is found in Jesus Christ. Our job, plain and simple, is to point people to the grace of God that is found in Jesus Christ. And we can do that with words, but the easiest way to do it is with actions. And so, we do like the psalmist. When we recognize that we're worn out and we're tired of hiding and our shame is just all out there, but we're trying to pretend like it's not, we step into the light and we confess and we trust the grace of God to make us whole. When we have done harm to somebody else in a relationship, we step into the light and we recognize the harm we've done. We don't hide from it and pretend like, oh, with, with time all things will heal over because we know that's not true. So we step into the light and we own it and we trust that forgiveness happens, not necessarily from the person we've harmed, but from God because they're not our forgiver anyway. And when someone comes to us and they confess that they've done harm to us or that they're afraid that they have our job is not to say, like, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it. Because it's not okay. Our job is to point people to the grace of God that's found in Jesus Christ and simply find a way within our hearts to say, you know what, I forgive you and I hope the best for you. It's through our actions and the way we interact with each other that we point people to the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. We have hope. We have hope because there are people from ancient times that wrote poems and songs about it. That when they confessed their sin, they found forgiveness, and then they could rest. They could rest from hiding from their shame. They could rest from hiding from their guilt. And we, sisters and brothers, can do the exact same thing. And I think we all need that. So maybe... Maybe this Lent and season, maybe this next 40 days or so, we can spend some time thinking about our lives and what we're hiding from. And pushing it into the light. And trusting.